So it's uh, for me rather nice to sit and uh, have the chance to look at you and uh, there's a certain amount of that that's possible from down on the floor but uh, <clears throat> kind of made for me the rather unusual choice today to bring a chair to be able to just see who I'm speaking to more clearly and of course that may not be something that you feel the same way about uh, and that you have less options as who to look at than I do at this moment perhaps but uh, there's something kind of I think lovely something kind of beautiful and precious about just acknowledging the the human aspiration the human engagement the human interest that we bring that is present here in all of us perhaps in different ways but I think at the very heart of it not so different ways and something about the way we bring ourselves to connect to explore to come to understand and discover what is possible for us as human beings something very worthy of honoring of acknowledging just the fact of coming and engaging in the way that we are here and when i come to give a talk in the evening on a retreat such as this i i like to begin by just taking a moment to to remember, to acknowledge, to appreciate and connect with my sense of gratitude for the, for the Buddha who was a human being not so different than ourselves, than yourselves than any of us human beings and who expressed in his life a, a dedication and a commitment both to understanding, to discovery and also to serving the welfare of others a remarkable expression of wisdom and of love that his life was and continues to resonate as is something that touches me something that nourishes me and it may not be that for everyone it's something we find some meaningfulness in it's fine it's not that anyone else needs to do what one person such as myself might wish to but to perhaps contemplate the possibility that the Buddha as a human being started from a place perhaps not so different from the place we ourselves find ourselves in began in his own journey, his own practice, his own trajectory of discovery, of awakening in a condition not dissimilar to the condition that we find ourselves in a condition and an experience quite recognizable from our own and that as such he represents a a potential that is there in all of us a possibility a capacity that is latent or to some degree developed and manifest or manifesting within us for a remarkable degree of wisdom of kindness of peace of love of freedom and these are things that as human beings I think we naturally resonate with and are drawn towards the possibility of And these perhaps stand in contrast to the, the things we're most normally oriented towards or at least the world around us most frequently invites us to be oriented towards in the realm of possessions and circumstances and experiences. That which is truly most important to us, I believe. And of course you can ask yourself and see what feels true for you 
But that which is truly most important to us is the condition of this heart and this mind. And equally the condition of the heart and the mind of all beings around us. This is what's truly important to us. Whether we know that or understand that fully or not. And so this condition of heart and mind of human beings, of life, not just human beings, of all life, this condition in which we find ourselves, this is really the topic, this is the subject, this is the territory of spiritual exploration, of spiritual practice. And when the Buddha spoke about this, he, he used a particular word, bhavana. And that word has been translated as meditation in most common Western cultures, circles, traditions. That's the language that's used. But in fact, a more... And meditation is a word that kind of comes from a... really a different culture. And as part of a, you know, the language of uh, Western spirituality and uh, Christian spirituality, and it's a good thing um, in terms of what it represents. But it often brings with it certain associations that are not necessarily there in what the Buddha was pointing to. And the primary word, in English at least, that expresses what the Buddha spoke of here when he used the word bhavana is the word cultivation. And that's, that word has for me a richness with a sense of possibility, of growth, of development, of something organic and alive. Whereas meditation might sound a bit to do with our head, to do with our sort of thinking capacity or our reflecting, cognizing capacity. Cultivation has the sense of something organic, something perhaps like gardening, and this is perhaps one of the most useful metaphors we could bring, we could have for what we're engaged in. To see, to understand that this that is closest to us, this experience of being alive, of being awake, of being here, of being touched so deeply, of feeling responses moving within us, seeing some of those responses within us being beautiful, noble, wholesome, <coughs> qualities of, of love, of kindness, of respect, of courage, of patience. And of course seeing some of the other reactions and responses within us of, of harshness, of, of grasping, of pushing away, that we see are not so wholesome, are not so useful. To, to talk about this experience of being alive as something which is malleable, this heart-mind, and the word the Buddha used was citta, it's the word he used for what we, what I am describing as heart-mind and touched on last night a little bit. Sometimes we call it heart, sometimes we call it mind, but it really encompasses both of those territories. This heart-mind is malleable. It can be shaped. It is being shaped. It has been, and it continues to be. And the question is, do we wish the shaping of this heart-mind, or what we could say, what is growing in this garden, if we use that image of cultivation, do we wish that to be random? Or do we wish that to be brought into alignment with what we most deeply care about, with what we value, with what we see to be wholesome, to be precious, to be beautiful. That our experience is changing, we see. It's perhaps relatively clear and obvious, although the degree to which that is so maybe isn't something we're always in touch with. To see that it's not entirely in our own control, likewise. We notice this in a day, even just 24 hours of being on retreat. We see how it changes, how it moves, how it shifts and flows from struggle to ease, from ease to struggle, from enjoyment to neutrality to sometimes disenchantment. And of course in many other ways. 
to see that this experience is malleable, is changing, is unfolding, is flowing, is being shaped, not randomly, not unlawfully, but according to conditions, is something really significant, something really important to see, ah, it's not just a random accident that we happen to experience things as they are. There are principles, there are processes, there are lawful ways in which this experience is formed, is shaped. And so far as we have our attention and our focus outwardly directed, oriented towards the doings, the busyness, the engagement, and at times, of course, it seems the entanglement with all of what's going on around us. So far as our orientation is in that direction, we don't necessarily see how clearly the real quality of our life is dependent upon what we cultivate, what we develop, what we allow and support to grow in this heart and mind. To see that this heart and mind are malleable, can be cultivated, developed, can grow, can be shaped, is also to understand that all of this that's happening, this experience, is not definitive of who we are or what we are we could say. But it does tell us, and really importantly so, it shows us where we are in terms of those possibilities of development, of cultivation, of the deepening, or otherwise, of that which is most important, most truly helpful, beneficial and wholesome. And so, when we talk about qualities such as wisdom, such as love, they're not just random things that fortunate people got a good dose of and we, being less fortunate, got less good a helping of. It's not just kind of bad luck. And yet at the same time, it's not something that we can just somehow switch or fix or change by an act of will or intention just as in a garden. It's not our fault if we go out into the patch of grass by our house and we see that there are weeds in it or that there's no vegetables growing there. There's reasons why that's so. It's not that it's our fault. And if we should plant things, it doesn't mean that the next day we'll suddenly have a lovely garden. Sometimes I think we come on retreat and we expect it to all happen really quickly. We want to shift from the state of something where we haven't given so much attention to this heart-mind. We give it a little bit in the morning or the evening. And half of that time we spend thinking we should be giving it more time, rather than actually giving it the time. Or wishing that what came of that bit of time we gave it was more or different than it is. So if we spend a lot of time in our garden walking around thinking, oh, I wish there weren't so many weeds. I wish there were more carrots. Hmm, gosh. You know, what actually, what we need to do is attend to the situation directly, to engage with it. So we're here on the retreat, as we are. And it's a very particular and a very precious condition to bring ourselves into. To be in a situation where there's just a lot less going on around us. And initially, that might feel like a relief. It's like, oh, phew. Oh, you know, a sense of out-breath. Just, wow, nothing I have to deal with, nothing's chasing me, nothing's grabbing me, nothing I need to pursue. And yet it's also the case that we might notice after a little bit of initial relief, we start to kind of feel a little bit like, well, actually I might want something to chase or we might like something to chase me. We're so used to being in that mode. And it's a bit like our relationship with these you know, wonderful, remarkable, incredible, and yet horrible, terrifying, um, crazy-making devices that we live, most of us, with in our lives now. And sometimes spend more time with than 
living beings. You know, to not have that opportunity to interact, to engage with others. That's hard sometimes. It's like, oh, we kind of feel the longing, the natural human wish for connection, for contact. And yet we might also recognize that the common, habitual and familiar ways we do that are a little bit kind of formalized, standardized. Not, they don't necessarily really allow us to make a deep connection with each other or with ourselves. Because there's often so much pressure, so much of a sense of having to present the who that I should be, in the hope that it will be liked, and the fear, of course, but with the fear that it may not be appreciated. And so there's something really powerful for us in just putting that down. We may have noticed over the day where we were looking a little bit for a smile, or hoping for a connection. And there's nothing wrong with that, but just to notice it. Be interested in that. They see the human hearts that wish we to connect. And yet, in our lives, we may have exchanged hundreds, thousands, tens of thousands of smiles with people. And yet, it hasn't necessarily fully met that place in us that wants to be touched, that wants to connect, that seeks perhaps some reassurance. And with the devices that we engage in, so much information. So much entertainment, so much that sense of being in touch with others. It's so rare for us now, isn't it, to just really be on our own? It used to be when you had to go from A to B or you had to sit at the bus stop and there was no one else there. Or, you know, there were many, many times even just the phone was ringing and you had to wait. There wasn't a voice on the other end of the phone talking at you. That wasn't a human being. It was a machine telling you that we really value your call and we're really trying to get to you very soon. It was like you just... Do you remember that? You, yes, I'm sure most of you were around in the times when actually someone just didn't answer the phone and you just listened to it ring for a while. And it's like those moments that we were just left with ourselves. There's so few. And so here, this kind of immersion in what it is to be with this. This mind, this heart, this body, this thing that's going on right here and now. And to see what we make of that. See what we do with that. Part of what the silence and the simplicity of this framework offers us is a mirror that shows us what's going on. And it's not happening because we're here on retreat. We're noticing it because it's, we're here on retreat. But it's what's going on all the time. Because whatever happens here happens in your life. Whatever ways your mind or your body or your heart show up here, they'll show up in those ways in your life, for sure. Because this is your life. This isn't somewhere on retreat, life on hold. No, no, this is your life. This is it happening right here, right now. And yet what it also offers is the invitation, the support, the encouragement to put at the centre of what we're engaged with here this process of deepening, of cultivating, of connecting with and bringing forth more and more fully that which serves the well-being of our life and the well-being of all of life which are ultimately not separate from each other and are served together or not at all. We can't serve one part of the wholeness of things at the expense of another. It doesn't work that way. And so... The primary orientation that we began with in the morning towards just being present, to being awake in the immediacy of things, seeing the tendency for distraction and disconnection is so strong. It's, it's, in one sense, we might notice how painful it is to be distracted, to be lost in our minds. You know, so many people come on retreat or come to 
to meditation practice, really just wanting the mind to be quiet, to shut up, to give me some space, just for a moment, please. I mean, can anyone relate to that? You know, what is that saying to us about the condition of our mind? Oh, actually, that's really painful. It's painful being lost and caught up and carried away by this spinning mental activity. And yet, the kind of the struggle with it, the attempt to stop it or make it go away, seems to perpetuate the activity. Seems to amplify the intensity of it. And so we, rather than trying to stop the activity, it would be a bit like trying to grab the flywheel or you know, a mill wheel when and, and old mechanical systems sort of momentum was sustained by getting a really large wheel spinning, some really big piece of stone spinning you know, to drive a mill. And then, of course, if you try and grab it, it won't just stop. It'll strip the skin off your fingers in a fraction of a second should you be foolish enough to take hold of it. And it's a bit like that with our minds. We sort of try and get it to stop. And then we feel the friction and the burn of the fact that it spins anyway. And it says, you can't stop me like that. The mind doesn't stop by the application of force. What happens is if we actually step back from it and stop feeding the momentum, it slows down naturally. And so this process, simple as it is, not always easy, but simple, of just coming back. Or just saying, okay, it's spinning over there, spinning in that direction, okay. Just coming back in and sensing, what's it like here? This body breathing, okay. What we notice is, although perhaps for quite some amount of the time, it feels like mostly we're just spinning, mostly we're just getting lost or pulled away so quickly. Over time, we begin to see that process more clearly. And this is important. And we begin to recognize that it does actually slow down. It does lose momentum when we stop feeding it. Or we stop driving it. With either our identification with the thinking process, believing this is the solution to my life. And if I can just think my way to the end of these difficulties, problems and situations, then they'll be resolved. Of course, we see from trying that, all it does is produce more thinking generally. Any situation that we need to think about. If we haven't come up with something useful in the first few thoughts, we just tend to recycle the old ones again and again. And so we put it down. We put it down. And neither that we're trying to stop it. So one thing is to pursue the thinking mind, thinking it's the solution. The other extreme is to make it into the problem and think somehow I've got to stop it or get rid of it. If it's uncomfortable to be witness to it, we need to recognize what that's telling us about how we're living our lives and what we're supporting in our lives. Because if most of our life we spend it just encouraging or being unconcerned about the way our mind is spinning, then just a little bit of time doing something different isn't going to make that much difference. Of course, while we're here, we see that it does make a difference. And the more time and support we give to this, the greater, the more significance it is, and the deeper the shift can run into our heart and our mind. And so just coming back to, to being where we are again and again. And we might notice at some point, oh, actually, we come, we almost just, without realizing it, it we recognize, oh, actually, the quality, the felt sense and experience of presence, of connection, of what it is to be here, is starting to become a little more palpable. It's something that we recognize. And of course we might think, great, I've got it. Now I want to keep it. And of course it doesn't work that way. We might start generating some fantasy about, oh wow, finally I've got it now. And you know, within moments our mind is spinning into the story of what a great meditator we're going to be. And you know, this amazing spiritual career ahead of us where we... You know, imagine ourselves sitting in a cave with sort of worshippers all around us, glowing lights spinning. You know, it doesn't take long for the mind to spin there, projecting that experience of just some calm. But still important to honour it, to see that, without trying to take hold of it. 
And of course the mind may spin from that into seeing how we made such a big story of that moment of peace, of calm, of presence, of mindfulness. And we think, oh gosh, I'm hopeless, this is useless. Everything I get hold of, I just make a big story out of. And in the next moment we might imagine we're just kind of, you know, hopeless, can't do it, no good. And somehow imagine that we're the only one to whom this happens. That it's me who has these flights of fantasy and dejection. And nobody else. You know, it's really quite a commonly reported experience that someone will be feeling a bit frustrated with their practice and just can't do it. And oh, oh. We look around, everybody else is sitting there so calm, so peaceful, so still. It's like, wow, they can all do it. It's like a room full of, you know, 50 almost fully enlightened Buddhas and just one overcooked vegetable, you know. And we kind of give up. Of course, in the next moment, someone sitting beside us might look at us and, wow, that person's really calm, they look really peaceful. Wow, their practice must be really deep. And we don't know what goes on for other people in their minds. But I tell you, this story is one that gets told many times in interviews, that kind of perception arising. So we need a, a real degree of patience here with this process. An immense degree of, of patience. And one of the aspects of that is the, this quality of allowing, of accepting, of making space for what's happening that has a real quality of, of kindness and of, of love in it. The quality of love that allows Something to be as it is, that allows ourselves to be as we are, including our state of potential for further development. We could put it that way, couldn't we? Look at how much potential I have for further development. You know, if I was fully developed, of course, there'd be none of that potential. So, wow, look at all this potential. There is no point at which it gets finished. So don't worry, that potential never runs out. But to see the tendency of reactivity, the tendency to reject, to judge, to push away, to wish it to be other than as it is. If we can start to see that that tendency disconnects us, it takes us away, it creates a kind of a, a deadness or a sort of an empty space, a gap or a disconnect, we could say. In, in our interior experience that's actually fundamentally painful. That's actually the, one of the primary experiences of what is painful to us as human beings. It's that sense of feeling disconnected from, apart from. And when we reject our experience, when we say this is not okay, or I am not okay, then we actually create or reinforce that gap, that separateness. And that's actually deeply painful, deeply distressing. So noticing where those habits, those mechanisms, those tendencies to reject, to react, to say, no, this is not okay, this is not allowed, doesn't mean we can't recognize that some patterns, some tendencies, some habits or maybe not wholesome, maybe not serving us. But whatever they may be, whether it's the tendency to be lost in our stories or to react harshly and judgmentally to our experience or to others, there's reasons why those patterns arose and perhaps they served us for some time. But it may also be the case that we recognise that they don't serve us so well anymore. And that starts to bring a shift, a sense of, okay, so what is it that supports this to change, to transform? We become interested to understand the conditions in which experience arises in a particular way. Understanding that nothing is fixed or solid, we can start to see that it arises out of supportive conditions. And what we can do is start to work towards or orient towards supporting the conditions that support what is wholesome. 
And it's again, it's like using that metaphor of gardening. You can't make up something grow, but you can water the earth, you can soften the soil, you can add the nourishment of compost, you can work on taking out the things that are growing around that aren't so useful or wholesome. And then see that in that space and in that soil, <coughs> that which is wholesome naturally takes root, begins to grow, ultimately to blossom and to bear fruit. So, one of the kind of ironic and sometimes embarrassing, sometimes painful things about this kind of practice is that whenever we turn towards something wholesome, we start to cultivate something, develop something that's of value, of benefit, what we straight away notice and are confronted with, often quite harshly, is how much the opposite is present. And we think, oh my gosh, I did not know. I did not realize just how distracted I was. Just how spaced out I was. Just how reactive and irritable I was. Just how greedy and impatient I was. Now, sometimes it is the case that actually, because of the simplicity of the environment, some of those patterns are amplified. And Rather than taking that as bad news, it's actually, oh, it's good, because this allows us to see what's here, to begin to look, to begin to understand what's going on with this. And to really let ourselves see there's a kind of a humility, a useful humility. Actually, humility, you know, the, I think it has a similar root to the word, you know, humus. It's the stuff that you find on the forest floor that actually becomes the compost from which the trees grow. Something about something earthy in this. A certain humility to say, gosh, my mind does that. You know? Whatever it is your mind does. And you might think, no, 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 when I say this. Other people's mind will do that too. For sure. Whatever it is your mind does, other people's mind will do that too. I remember Joseph Goldstein, one of the uh, sort of elders of our tradition and someone who I feel very fortunate to know both as a teacher and also regard as a friend. He, he would sometimes say on retreats, um, he said, you know, if my students knew what, they were th what I was thinking when I'm sitting here, they wouldn't come on my retreats. Imagine if our thoughts were broadcast onto the back wall. Imagine if it was just one person's thought. Who would volunteer to be that person? You know, not me. I'm not asking you to, don't worry. But you know, if everybody's thoughts were being projected onto the wall at the back of the hall, the text would actually start to read quite similar. And it's something we perhaps notice in the small groups. As one or two of you commented today. The process isn't quite so personal to us in those terms. To deal with what it is to be conscious, to have a heart, a mind, a body. This is shared territory for us all. And just as we might notice and see and often tend to pick out and highlight quite strongly that which seems the evidence of our limitation or our failings in, in meditation or in this process of, of development, of cultivation, of growth, actually it's really important, and it's a practice, it's really important as part of our practice to notice and to really allow ourselves to see equally those moments when we're mindful and present, undistracted. Those moments when there's a, a sense of a, just a kindly or a friendly caring for another. Or we just maybe notice we don't try and push into the space to get to the front of the queue to get to lunch, but we actually just allow another person to go in front of us. Because we're just okay with that, without it being a big thing. Or there's just a moment of fondness we feel for one of our companions in the space, though we don't know them at all or anything about them, but we just, we just feel how the, the humanity of doing what we're doing here 
is something quite beautiful. And it's not that we have to make something too much out of it. But I've noticed those places where what shows up is an alignment with what we do love, with what we value, with what we care about, and recognize to be precious and wholesome. Because that honoring, that appreciating, is really helpful, is really supportive. It nourishes the heart. It allows us to connect with a, with a natural sense of, of, a, of, of a kindly, appreciative quality. To notice and to just give attention to. And sometimes we're sort of almost taught and trained to not highlight our own strengths or our good qualities. That somehow that's egotistical or big-headed or sort of will lead to some sort of inflation of self. And of course, if we take hold of it and come to define ourselves by such moments, then yes, that's true, there's some danger there. But equally, and it seems to me more common for us, is that we tend to take hold of and tend to define ourselves much more by the moments that we would regard as less successful or less in line with what we were aspiring to develop or to cultivate. So there's a balancing that comes from just, oh yes, look. Sometimes there's a real tenderness for other beings in my heart. There really can be. And sometimes walking on the grass, those little furry things we call bunnies, you know, and they just somehow don't seem to be quite as scared as they should be. But they're just not. And they just we might just, oh, how sweet they are. Well, that curious chap who's taken up residence just outside our grounds in his, in his um, four-wheel drive, and he whistles. And sometimes my mind goes, who's whistling? I think, oh, it's him, of course. He's not on silent retreat. I was here for a few weeks on retreat myself recently, and it's like, who's that talking to themselves? Oh, it's him. Oh, well, obviously he enjoys his own company, you know. Bless him. And, you know, human creatures are not that different than actual bunnies when it comes down to it at that level. In one sense, they're just something, oh, how lovely. Beings, how lovely. Of course, it's not always what arises for us, but when it does, to honour that, to say, oh, oh, look. It's just something simple. We don't have to make too much of it, but something beautiful nonetheless. So there's a process of training, of developing, of cultivating that goes on here. And in some ways to see it is, is a bit like training a puppy. It's not like we can tell it what to do and it's going to understand. But by guiding ourselves, bringing ourselves back, encouraging ourselves in a kindly, in a friendly, in a loving way, we see that the mind and the heart actually are shaped by our intentional engagement with them. And it does take time. We can't rush it. It's said that the, in the training that the Buddha instituted, you know, over 2,600 years ago, women and men, I'm pretty sure, who were not really so different from ourselves, though their world was a little different, quite a little different in fact, but Human beings haven't changed that much, to be honest, in the heart of things. The first rule of training and of practice that he gave to the people who came around him and committed themselves to working and practicing and living in the way that he suggested, he said, it was just patience. Just be patient with things. It grew from that into dozens and dozens of different rules and guidelines and precepts as things grow and that's the way things go. But um, the first was just patience. What is it to be truly patient with ourselves in a loving way in this process? It doesn't mean being lazy or kind of giving up and saying, oh, well, I'll just give it more time. No, it needs us to be engaged. But all too easily we have this sort of instant gratification expectation, this culture of I should be able to have it and get it right now. And if I haven't got it sorted by the end of a day, gosh, well, almost halfway through the retreat, oh, you know, Hopeless, useless. <coughs> it's not so. It's not so. In fact, I remember this lovely story uh, 
of the Dalai Lama and a student who came to see him who'd been practicing meditation for many, many years. And, in fact, I think he'd been practicing for about 20 years. And he, he came to His Holiness. He had this brief and very precious opportunity for a one-to-one -one interview. And he, he asked him, he said, you know, I've got all these things going on in my meditation. There's these um, struggles and these difficulties. He talked about, you know, for 20 years I've been battling with this. And His Holiness apparently looked at him and said, you know, with great kindness and compassion, he said, it's difficult, isn't it? <laughs> you know, it's like that in the early years of meditation. <laughs> and there's something that is, ah, oh, yeah. <clears throat> Imagine if we could see that, you know, the first 20, they're just the early years. We're just getting the hang of it. You know? It's like in life. We give ourselves... At least 20 years to so-called grow up. I think that's kind of a fantasy, actually. Our body maybe grows up in about 20 years or a bit less, but <coughs> it takes us much more than that to grow into our life. Growing up suggests we get finished. I don't think it happens that way. And likewise, the growing, the developing, the cultivating of the heart and the mind. This quality of appreciation is also really important. It is a foundation of loving-kindness. It's what the Buddha spoke of as the proximate condition for the arising of loving-kindness in our heart. It's the ability to turn towards what we appreciate, what we care about, what we value in another, what we value in ourselves, what we value in a situation. And it's really interesting because I think for many of us it's, it's actually hard. It's not easy. I often reflect upon this, that, you know, if I was to ask, it seems this is so in, for many of us in, in, in the West, Western social context and conditioning, and maybe elsewhere too, but I don't know other cultures so well, that, you know, it wouldn't be that difficult for us if I said, okay, so I want everyone to make a list of five things that really need sorting out or fixing about you. You know, could you write them down? And probably most of us could do it pretty quickly. It wouldn't take us too long, you know, I expect. And then if I were to say, and could you, you know, read them out now? I'd be like, hmm, don't really want to, but yeah, I probably should. It'll be good for me, you know, sort of kind of thing might arise for us. I'm not going to do that, don't worry. It's not one of the exercises on the practice um, here. But if we were to say, okay, can you list five things that are really wonderful, beautiful, admirable about yourself? Times I think for many of us we'd find that quite hard, possibly painful. Even if we could recognise them, to actually let ourselves write them down. And if I said, and will you read them out? It's like, no way! That would be completely taboo. Again, I don't know if you recognise what I'm pointing to in that. I imagine you might. But it's actually really sad that that's the case, so far as it is. It may not be for you. But there's something about the way in which we don't easily open to appreciating and to honouring ourselves. And so that's something that, some, that we really need to remember, to reflect on, to come back to. When we practice loving-kindness for another who we appreciate, we, can, we kind of turn to, we, we bring to mind, we, we begin in the place where there's someone who we have a lot of appreciation for, a lot of gratitude towards, a lot of where we have the ability to see what is good, what is wholesome, what is lovely, what is beautiful in that person or being. And therefore easily a sense of kindness, a sense of friendliness, a sense of loving arises and can be opened and directed towards that person or that being. And so too, likewise in ourselves, to really, to really honour, just just. Just to have spent even a day doing what we've been doing here. So many people, the vast majority of people in this world will probably never spend even a whole day as dedicated, as devoted to inner development of cultivation of that which is beautiful, that which is noble, as we have done. Of course, there will be many. The, the, the minority, of course, is large. There's a lot of people. You can still have three and a half booing and it's a minority. That's a lot of people, but it's probably not quite that many. 
And this, 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 is, this is part of where, when I come, and as I said at the beginning, I like to just take a moment to bow down to, to the Buddha, to the representation of our human potential. Representation of our noble aspiration and our capacity to wake up, to awaken this heart, this mind into the fullness of its capacity to see clearly and truly the way things are that is founded on the simple ability to be present with interest and openness to abide in a conscious and sensitive connection with what's happening right here whatever it might be and out of that comes naturally organically and unstoppably a deepening understanding and ultimately a fruition in wisdom and the wisdom that releases the heart and the mind from the entanglement with life and likewise in just turning towards that capacity for appreciating that possibility of wishing well for of extending kindliness towards towards another towards ourselves, just towards the very experience that's happening here, in that sense of allowing and receiving it as it is. Not assuming that it's fixed in the way that it is, but in the moment it arises, it is this. Not more or less, not other than this. And just that willingness, that capacity to steadily, perhaps slowly, but ultimately unstoppably deepens and grows so far as we keep turning to it so long as we keep supporting it cultivating developing allowing it to to ripen it too unstoppably develops into the the flowering of an open-hearted caring a caring that is natural that is innate at the very core of what it is that makes us what we are but that is very often for us bounded or limited by the way we identify with both our preferences and our likes, our dislikes, our reactions and our sense of what we call me and how we, or mine, and how we so often perceive so much of the world and at times of course so painfully parts of ourself as something other than what we can include in that heartful capacity. And in that development, in that growing, in that flowering, the, the fullness of the heart's expression, of the, the expression of the, the natural loving capacity that we participate in. We are not the owners of it, but nor are we outside of it. That this expresses itself in an expansion which is ultimately boundless which has the capacity to embrace all parts of our own being, our own experience, our own life, and to equally include and embrace all of life, all beings, all that is. And in this there's a, there's a fulfilling of life. So there's both a release born of wisdom founded in attention and presence and mindfulness and clear seeing. And there's a, a filling and a full filling, filling till it's full. A fulfillment founded in Embracing in the heart's embrace of life that arises just from the willing to embrace what's here. Just this, for now, to see what happens if I do. And so, it's good what you're doing here.
It's good. Trust. Trust yourselves. Trust your heart. Trust your life. And this possibility, this directionality. that has so much to offer and offers it directly in relationship to how much we give ourselves to it. This practice isn't something we do to get something. That's a very habitual orientation or state of mind. <coughs> but we learn to let go of what no longer serves us and to give, to offer our life moment by moment in the service of this waking up, ultimately in the service of the awakening of life, of all of life. So let's sit quietly together for a few moments. So may we all, through our practice here and in our lives, may we all come to deepen in wisdom, in love, through the simple practices of being present and bringing kindness to bear moment by moment. For the unfoldment, for the flowering, and for the fulfillment of our hearts and our lives, for our deepest well being, and for the welfare of all beings. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.